So it's our practice at the barge to work through books of the Bible, and uh, we're going to pick up our series in Malachi, so in the Old Testament prophet, you can find that on page uh, 969. And then if you're new here, just to say that inside the service sheet is an outline of where we're going. And also one of the inserts has on one side a timeline of Malachi, just if you want to orientate yourself as to where we are, so it's 5th century BC. And then on the other side is the structure of Malachi. So we've been looking at it in six chunks, and we've had three talks so far with the fourth talk. So hopefully that just helps you to, uh, to orientate yourself. So page 969, Malachi chapter 2, verse 17. You have wearied the Lord with your words, but you say... How have we wearied him? Well, by saying, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or by asking, where is the God of justice? Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But... Who can endure the day of his coming, and who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire, and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi, and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord, as in the days of old, and as in former years." Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. Well, please do keep that open. In 2014... Nadia Murad was 19 years old, and ISIS militants carried out a genocide against her Yazidi community in northern Iraq. They killed her mother, they killed six of her brothers and half-brothers, and Nadia herself was kidnapped, and she was forced into sexual slavery, along with 6,000 other Yazidi women and girls. She escaped. Uh, She now works as an advocate for survivors of genocide and sexual violence. Uh, She was awarded the Nobel Prize, uh, Peace Prize in 2018. But where was God in all this? Where is the God of justice? Why does he allow people to do such evil and to get away with it? Last year, you'll have seen in the news that a family escaped from North Korea... And they told stories of the awful conditions in that country. People starving to death, labor camps, public execution of anyone who steps out of line. But the supreme leader lives in luxury. His established net worth is $5 billion. Mansions, private jets, yachts. Where's the God of justice? Why doesn't God just take him out? Some who are not Christians see this as proof that God does not exist. 
to the late Christopher Hitchens, for example, in debate with John Lennox. You can watch this on YouTube. He imagines God watching all this injustice over thousands of years with what he calls perfect insouciance, which means he doesn't care. So to Hitchens, it was absurd to believe in such a cruel God. And for those of us who are Christian, it's a question we may struggle with as well. Where is the God of justice? Why doesn't he intervene? Why does he allow evildoers to get away with it? What would you say? It's not a new question. It's a question that God's people were asking two and a half thousand years ago in the days of the prophet Malachi. So if you've got it open still on page 969, it's there in the very first verse of our passage today. So in 317, where is the God of justice? This was early 5th century BC. The people had returned to Judah from exile in Babylon. They'd rebuilt the temple. They'd restarted worship. And they had become spiritually disillusioned. And one reason why they'd become disillusioned was this, that God did not seem to be just. And so that is what we're looking at today. So the accusation of injustice and how God responds to it. Firstly, then, you'll see on your outline the accusation. Verse 17, the prophet says to the people, You have wearied the Lord with your words. God does not get tired, he doesn't get weary like we do from a long day at work. Isaiah 40, verse 28 says, The Lord is the everlasting God the creator of the ends of the earth, he doesn't faint, he doesn't grow weary, unlike us. But he does get tired, he does get tired of his people accusing him. He gets fed up with it, listening to accusations against him. Verse 17, but you say, how have we wearied him? So the people are surprised. They don't think they've done anything wrong. They push back, as they've been doing throughout this book. So how had they wearied God? Verse 17, by saying, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Now, why were they saying that? Why did they think that God approved of evildoers and even delighted in them? Well, presumably because God did not appear to be doing anything about evil people. God wasn't punishing them. So not only was he allowing evil people to get away with it, he even seemed to be blessing them. So they were enjoying a good life. They were healthy, they were wealthy, they were prosperous. And so God's people were asking there in verse 17, they were saying, where is the God of justice? That is, if God is just... Why is he allowing people, evil people, to prosper? Who were these evildoers? Two options. Perhaps, perhaps God's people were looking over the border at the surrounding nations. So those people over there, those people who didn't worship the Lord, uh, who were living as they saw fit, they seemed to be doing very well for themselves. But the issue was also, it was also closer to home that it seems that there were people within the covenant community, so within Judah, who were doing evil 
and getting away with it. They were enjoying a good life. So when we get to chapter 3, verse 5, examples have given, are given of the evil things that some of the people of Judah were doing. So sorcerers, adulterers, swearing falsely, oppressing others, not fearing the Lord. Why do evildoers get away with it and even prosper? And by contrast, those who do good often have a hard time. It doesn't seem just. It doesn't seem to fit with God being just. Now, it's okay to ask this question. It's what the psalmist does in Psalm 73, which was our first reading, that in that psalm, the psalmist says that he was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. So that's okay. What isn't okay is to accuse God of injustice. So was it, what isn't okay is to make out that God delights in evildoers. When we do that, then we've crossed a line. And we saw that Job did that when we went through the book of Job. And that's what these people were doing in Malachi's day. Sorry, we've got a problem with the speaker there. Not a lot we can do. So when we do that, then we are wearying God with our words and he gets fed up with it. C.S. Lewis uh, wrote an essay called God in the Dock. And towards the end of the essay, he writes this. He says, The ancient man approached God, or even the gods, as the accused person approaches his judge. For the modern man, he says, the roles are reversed. He is the judge. God is in the dock. He's quite a kindly judge. If God should have a reasonable defense for being the God who permits war, poverty, and disease, he's ready to listen to it. The trial may even end in God's acquittal. But the important thing is that man is on the bench and God is in the dock. Now that is what we must not do. So that's getting things topsy-turvy. That's role reversal. That's forgetting who God is and who we are. What then is the Lord's response? Well, that's what we have in chapter 3, 1 to 5. Where is the God of justice? Answer, he's on his way. He's coming. But before he comes, the Lord says that he will send his messenger to prepare the way. So look at 3, verse 1. God says, behold, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. In the ancient world, uh, if a king was to make a state visit to another country, he would send a messenger ahead to prepare the way, or to pave the way, as we, the expression goes. Get the roads ready, set everything up. Even today, apparently, for a state visit to Buckingham Palace, it takes eight people three weeks to clean and polish the silverware used for a state banquet. And so the Lord was going to send his messenger ahead of him, and he did. 500 years after this prophecy, the messenger arrived on the scene. So Mark chapter 1 verse 2 quotes this verse from Malachi, and then it says this. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness, and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. So the promised messenger was John the Baptist. Jesus said of John the Baptist in Matthew 11 verse 10, he said, this is he of whom it was written, and then Jesus quotes Malachi chapter 3 verse 1. 
John the Baptist's father. Zechariah says at his birth, you child will go before the Lord to prepare his ways to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. That's Luke 1.76. This is just one example of dozens of Old Testament prophecies fulfilled in the Jesus events. It's God's typical way of operating. He announces beforehand what he's going to do. It's his calling card, so we know it's him when he does it. Now this gives us certainty that this is God at work. So the way that Old Testament prophecy is fulfilled in New Testament history, it should give us great confidence that this is God's doing. It's God at work. But this is also a reminder, it's a reminder that God operates on a different timescale to us. The people were saying, where's the God of justice? And God replies, don't worry, I'm on my way, I'll send my messenger ahead of me. And so he does, 500 years later. Now for us as 21st century believers, this is a really, really important lesson. We need to be patient. God will fulfill his promises, but in his time. I mean, we expect immediate responses to everything, don't we? We expect immediate responses to emails. We panic, don't we, when we see the blue ticks next to that WhatsApp message we've sent five minutes ago, but there's still no response. But we know they've read it. We expect next day delivery of something we've ordered. We get annoyed if we arrived at the station, and it says there's six minutes to wait for the next train. What's going on? If we try to make God fit into our instant timescales, we're going to be disappointed. Being patient, waiting, is a repeated biblical theme. The Lord would send his messenger. And then, verse 1, the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. So once the messenger had done his preparatory work, then the king himself would come. So Lord there, that is the title for a sovereign ruler. In fact, it's used elsewhere of God. So God is described in Zechariah chapter 4 as the Lord of all the earth. So God himself would come. As God says here in chapter 3 verse 1, the messenger will prepare the way before me. Before me, God. And yet at the same time, God says in verse 1, He is coming, rather than I am coming. And we think, well, hold on, who is this person who is both God, but also seems to be distinguished from God? Well, the people in Malachi's day must have wondered what on earth this was talking about. But we can now look back on the glorious fulfilment of this prophecy in the coming of Jesus. As John's Gospel proclaims, The Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. The Lord has come to his temple, the mediator of the new covenant. Who is Jesus? Well, he believes, he himself believed that he was the fulfillment of this ancient prophecy, that he was the Lord, he was the King sent into the world. 
Not just another man, but the God-man. Now, of course, this is what we've just celebrated at Christmas. It's what we'd love you to take a closer look at if these things are, are new to you, you're looking into Christian things. The Hope, Ex- the Hope Explored course beginning this Thursday evening. A great way to do that. So, the Lord would come. But, verse 2 says, but who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? The people of Malachi's day, they wondered where the God of justice was. They were frustrated. They wanted him to show up. They wanted him to step in. But, be careful what you wish for. Who can endure the day of his coming? Implied answer, no one. No one can. So his coming would be a huge challenge for everyone. Not just for some evildoers out there, but for all of us. Sometimes people say, if only God came and revealed himself, then I would believe. But be careful what you wish for. When he did come, people didn't like it. They found it uncomfortable, they found it disturbing, they found it confronting. It wasn't what they were expecting, it wasn't what they wanted. And this is the dilemma. We say we want God to show up, we want him to do something. But when he does, when he did, we don't like it. It doesn't fit our expectations. We want him to come and sort out the world. We want him to get rid of all the evil people over there. But he came to deal with all evil, including that in each of us. So the coming of Jesus gets very personal very quickly for all of us. Let's look at why he came. Last week we had a couple of days um, up in the Lake District. We went for a walk around one of the lakes. And at one point I suggested that we head up to the top of this hill here to get a better view. So one of the kids sort of ran ahead and legged it up to the top. And then they shouted down that actually it's not the top. There's another summit sort of hidden behind it. So what looked like a hill or sort of one hill from our path was actually two when you got up there. And it's the same with the coming of Jesus. That from an Old Testament perspective it looked like one coming But when you got closer, it was actually two. So his first coming is actually what's described in verses 2 to 4, and then verse 5 would be fulfilled in his second coming. If you're not into hill walking, maybe think of it like this. It's a bit like having two Krispy Kreme donuts. And if you stack them on top of each other, and you look end on, it just looks like one donut... But when you turn them and you look from the side, it's clear that there are two donuts. Well, in the Old Testament, we're looking at the donuts end on. At the Lord's first coming, what would he do? He would purify his people. So verse 2 says, For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. Who can stand? Well, he would sit. He would sit like a refiner of precious metals. This was a dangerous job in the ancient world. So the refiner basically would sit next to a super hot fire, 1,000 degrees Celsius. He'd put the solid metal into this crucible. He'd melt it. He'd stir it. And then he'd skim off the impurities and the dross that rose to the top. 
But the Lord said that he would come into the world to do this with his people. To refine them. To purify them, not of dross, but of sin. And not actually through them going into the fiery furnace, but he himself going into it for them. Bearing their sins, bearing their dross, all their impurities. So Titus 2.13 says, Our Saviour Jesus Christ gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession. The other picture used here is of washing us clean. So verse 2, like fuller's soap. A fuller was somebody who cleansed cloth or wool and washed away the dirt. That's what a fuller was. So the Lord came to wash his people clean of their sins. To make them white like wool. So Titus 3.5 says he saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. Where is the God of justice? Well, he's there. He's hanging on a cross. That's how committed he is to justice. Why doesn't he do something about all the the sin in the world? Well, he has. But the problem was not just the sin of the world out there, but our sin. He came to purify and cleanse his people at the cost of terrible suffering. Who can endure his coming? It's confronting, isn't it? Because if that's what it takes to purify us, we must be very dirty. We must be very impure and sinful. On Christmas Day, we had uh, the first King's speech. I'm sure you listened to it. Don't know what you made of it. Maybe you thought, well, it was encouraging, wasn't it? Jesus was mentioned three times. Fantastic. But it was disappointing that the reason Jesus came was totally missed. Jesus was presented to us as just an example of serving and loving other people. These, we were told, were universal values, which you find in most belief systems and religions. But the Lord didn't come to just show us how to be more loving. He came to die for us, to suffer in our place, to purify and cleanse us from sin. Cleanse us in two senses. Firstly, to forgive us for our sins. And secondly, to set us free from our sins. Renewed to live righteously. And so verse verse 3 goes on. He will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. And they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. And then the offerings of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord. As in the days of old. And as in former years. So as God's forgiven people, we are now to bring offerings to the Lord in righteousness. We are, as 1 Peter 2.5 says, we are now a holy priesthood. Offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So the sacrifices of good works and changed lives. As Titus 2.14 puts it, Jesus came to purify for himself a people for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. So this is why the Lord came, to purify a people for himself. Cleansed of the guilt of sin, cleansed from the power of sin. Where is the God of justice? Well, he's come. He's come to deal with sin and evil. 
our sin, our evil. But we say there's still a lot of it in the world. There's still so much injustice, so much evil. What about all that? The other day I was reading there was a a 63-year-old woman who lost £400 to some scam caller. Uh, This scam caller pretended to be her bank and she fell for it. And once this guy on the phone got access to her money, he mocked her on the phone. He was laughing. He was saying how stupid she was. He said, look, if you go, if you open up your bank app now, you'll see me taking your money, you stupid woman and so on. And this poor woman, who was caring for her husband who was recovering from heart surgery, she was left shaking, she was left crying. We think, well, so many evildoers. And they just seem to get away with it. They're, they're laughing all the way to the bank. The first coming of the God of justice, it, it hasn't sorted all this stuff out. But his second coming will. Verse 5, God says, Then I will draw near to you for judgment. He came first to save. He will return to judge. To judge all evil. To judge all evildoers. So verse 5, he says, I'll be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. The God of justice is going to judge. As Romans 2.5 says, a, a day of wrath is coming when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. And at the the final judgment, God will be both the judge and the witness. So verse 5 here, he says, I will be a swift witness. Imagine that. Imagine being on trial and having God on the witness stand testifying against you. God who knows everything, God who sees everything. All wrongdoing will be dealt with. Everyone will be called to account. But, notice the particular focus here. God says to his Old Testament people, then I will draw near to, verse 5, to you for judgment. There were plenty of people in Judah, plenty of people among the returned exiles, who were living godless lives. So they still came to the temple, But, as we've seen in previous talks, they just brought roadkill for sacrifice. They didn't fear God. They were living faithless, sinful lives. And unless they repented, the warning here is that judgment would fall on them too. In the end, you see, there are just two categories of people. There are the purified, and there are the judged. There are the cleansed, and there are the condemned. But, and this is really important, we find both groups among those who call themselves God's people. We find both of those groups among those who call themselves God's people. So in the visible church, both groups are mixed up together. And it's only at the Lord's return, at his second coming, that the two groups will be separated out. So for now, the wheat and the weeds grow together as Jesus said in Matthew 13. Now that was the case at the Old Testament temple, and it is the case in the New Testament church. And so we need to make sure that we are in the right group. What we mustn't do is deceive ourselves 
that we're okay because we go to church or we say we're Christian. The question is, have I been purified from sin through the death of Jesus? Am I now turning from sin and living a new life in the power of the Spirit, zealous for good works? If not, I need to change groups without delay. I was speaking to someone just this past week who said he realized that until now in his life, until now, he had only been a Christian in name, he said, not in reality, and he wanted that to change. We will only be ready for the Lord's second coming if we have received personally what he did for us at his first coming. So it's his first coming that makes us ready for his return. For Christmas this year, I got a set of brightly, very brightly coloured socks, some of which I'm wearing today. <laughs> I've been wearing them. I got a woolly jumper, Exhibit A. I got some earbuds. I've been using them. I've been listening with them. At the first Christmas, God gave us fire and he gave us soap. And the question is, are we using them? The fire was not given to keep us warm, but to burn away our impurities. So through the forgiveness of our sins and cleansing. And the soap was given not as an ornament to look at, but to wash us clean. And so the question is, are we using it? Where is the God of justice? Well, he's now come, and he is soon coming back. But if he comes at midnight tonight, where will you be at one minute past? Well, let's pause to reflect on what we've heard, and then we'll join in prayer together.